Liberty, Liberty Church. Uh, our pastor, Matt Luloyan, is traveling uh, over the holidays with Shay and his girls. So we're looking forward to having him back with us next Sunday. It's good to see you all here this morning. It's my privilege uh, to open the Word of God for us this morning. And I would ask you to um, open your Bibles to Luke, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15. Um, nearby, if you're new with us, uh, if you look around under a chair somewhere, there should be a black hard-covered Bible like this. Um, if you don't have a Bible, that is our gift to you. We'd love for you to, to take that with you as you leave today. Um, it's on page 874, uh, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15, page 874. Read along with me. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing, and when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I've found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over the one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I've found the coin that I have lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of heaven, the angels of God, over one sinner who repents. And he said... There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed, pig, feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. 
But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son, this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and he came and drew near to the house. And he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked, What these things meant? And he said to them, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I've served you, and I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat. You never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have, all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost. And is found. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Pray with me. Our Father, help me now to break forth the living bread, the light of the world, the water of life, who is Jesus Christ, your Son, who receives us as sinners forgives us, welcomes us. Open our hearts this morning that we would receive you. Draw us to yourself by this love, by this mercy, by this grace that we read about in this gospel. Father, I pray that you would touch the hearts of prodigals and self-righteous alike. Father, that you would bear, give birth to us, give birth in us a new love for the lost. And that in our hearts we would create an environment that welcomes repentance, that receives people in love. For Jesus' sake, amen. This chapter of the gospel is all about lost things. A lost sheep, a lost coin, and lost brothers. Have you ever lost anything? Anybody ever lost anything? What'd you lose? What'd you lose? What? A credit card. Credit card. Wallets. Keys. How about cell phones? Anybody ever lose your cell phone? Anybody have to call your own cell phone from your wife's cell phone in the house to find your cell phone? My wife suggested that I tell you about how she loses her cell phone and we'll be going out the door. I don't have my phone. Will you call it? So fortunately, or hopefully, it's not going to be on vibrate or turned off. And it will ring, you'll hear it, and you'll find it. I've lost many things over the years. Some that I've recovered, some that I haven't. 
My kids have lost some of my stuff too. I've found rusty tools in the woods. My favorite tomahawk that I used as a, as a little kid that I would throw and stick into trees is somewhere in a briar patch on our property, still yet to be found. We've all lost things. Some things are important that we lose. Some things aren't that important. The thing that I'm afraid of losing right now is our new dog. It's really our son Tim's dog. And the other day, uh, this dog's just been amazing. It's a German Shepherd. It's the first dog we've ever had where we could go out on a walk or a hike. And he actually stays with us. The shepherd instinct is so strong in him, he will not leave us. He'll watch us. He'll look out for us. He'll look around. But I looked out the other day, and we've been able to trust him so far. And I looked out the window, and I saw him in the, in the grass. And he and our other dog had been playing, but then they got disinterested in one another. And next thing you know, I saw him just walking toward the woods. And I was like, ooh, I, I hope he does not go away and that he'd be lost. And we'd have to go out and seek after him to find him. We've lost kids in stores, fortunately never for long. It seems like years ago, at least when I was a kid, people lost their kids in stores more often. You'd hear over the public address system, would so-and-so please come retrieve their child? And, uh, and you know, it's, it's, it's hard to keep your eyes on one kid, and when you have two, it's even more difficult, and then three, it's just about impossible. And we have five, so it is impossible, and you just throw yourself on the mercy of God and hope that uh, they don't disappear forever. I remember being, um, uh, uh, you know, having the fear of being in Walmart and hearing over the public address system, would a Mr. Kenny please come retrieve his son Andrew now that he's been sufficiently shamed for not watching his children and for being such a moron? There was a time years ago, over 20 years ago, that my brother Joe and I went trout fishing in northern Pennsylvania. And it was, had been raining uh, buckets for days. And all of the creeks were, were just terribly swollen uh, with water. And we had left my dad uh, and had agreed that we would meet up at a certain time. And when that time rolled around, we weren't back. And my dad was given to immediately think the worst and to begin to worry. And he began to worry so much and fear got a hold of him so terribly that he called the state police and we were out in the, out in the mountains and he called the state police to, to tell them that his sons were lost and would they begin looking. And the problem was we, we had just lost track of time. Neither of us had a watch. And when we finally got back, uh, he was beside himself with grief, that he had played everything out in his own mind, and, and alcohol never helps a situation like that. And he, and he saw before his own eyes, imagined before his own eyes, that we, were, that we were both drowned, that we had both been pulled into the water and lost. Losing things can break your heart. And I want us to look particularly at this parable of the lost sons this morning in Luke's Gospel. This is a story about two lost sons and their father. The younger son has been called the prodigal. And since it's not a word that we use every day, I'll define it for us. It is someone characterized by reckless, foolish, and wasteful spending. Someone who just blows what they have without caring or thinking about it. The older brother, he doesn't have a special title. 
And he's often overlooked in this story. And over the years, while much has been made of the prodigal and little of the older brother, I would say that they're both very important for us to consider this morning. And I'm going to call the older brother the pretender. Jesus begins the story by telling us that a certain father had two sons. And it says that they had a meeting. And the younger of them said, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. The story suggests that both brothers were present for this sad family meeting because at the end of the meeting, the text says that the father divided the inheritance between them. We have to understand what is going on here. The younger brother is saying to his father, Dad, look, you're as good as dead to me. You mean nothing to me at this point. And I want to leave your house, but I want my money, my share of the inheritance. You and my brother mean nothing to me. The heartache in this family is gut-wrenching. We read nothing of a mother in this story, but we, we are sure that if she was present, this would have broken her heart to see her father and her two sons so torn apart. She'd be utterly devastated. Two brothers who every father would wish to be best friends, to share life together, to play and work together, to support each other in adversity, now pitted against each other. The younger brother, callous to the pain and damage he is inflicting. The older brother, filled with rage at the insolence of his little brother. And the disrespect shown to the father. Not to mention his own heart, his own, his own hurt at being abandoned by his brother. The father, brokenhearted, first that his young son, once a little boy whose face he surely tenderly stroked, would co so coldly cut him off, and next that his older son would lose all capacity to go on loving his brother. The family would never be the same. After moments like this, it feels like all joy has gone out of the house for good. The family circle is broken. It's devastating. I remember back to a Wednesday night in 1992 to a family meeting between my four brothers and my father and myself that was supposed to happen. And I did not want to be at that meeting. I knew it would end badly. And I wanted no part of it. I was actually on my way to church because I had made up my mind I would not be there. And I got a phone call on my first cell phone from one of my brothers insisting that I be there, that I attend. And against my will, I turned around and went. When that meeting was over, everything was broken. After hunting together with my brothers and my dad since I was nine years old and longer than that for my older brothers, the circle of brothers and father was broken. The 6K's hunting camp was no more. And in moments like these, the grief of some is unbearable, 
and the anger of others is intolerable. What is remarkable to me in this story is the act of the Father. What is so stunning and beautiful is that the Father actually complies with the request. Verse 12 says, He divided His wealth between them. This is the the first observation that I would like us to consider, and that is that the Father lets His Son break His heart instead of wound His pride and willingly bears the reproach of shame out of love. Indeed, our sin and our lostness has broken our Savior's heart. This love took him to the cross, where Psalm 69 prophetically said of Christ's suffering, suffering, reproach has broken my heart, and I am so sick. I looked for sympathy, and I found none. For comforters, and I found none. It's like the words of the prophet Jeremiah in Lamentations. Behold and see if there be any sorrow like this father's sorrow. When those we love sin with such an open display of disgrace and rebellion without regard to those that love them, it rocks our world. Our hearts feel torn out of their place and exposed. And rather than break our hearts to allow for the love of God to pour forth, sometimes this wounds our pride or it makes us angry that the plans that we had for our lives are now all messed up. When the Magi came to visit the Christ child two years after he was born, remember what what they brought with them. They brought gold, they brought frankincense, and they brought myrrh. Myrrh is an aromatic resin that comes from a a number of small, thorny, shrub-like trees that grow in the Horn of Africa and in the eastern Mediterranean. And myrrh has been used for years as incense, perfume, and medicine. To harvest myrrh resin, you have to wound the tree. You have to penetrate through the bark and into the sapwood. And when when you do this, The tree bleeds resin. And when people harvest myrrh, they would wound the tree repeatedly to bleed them, to to bleed them of the fragrant resin. Brothers and sisters, when our lives are penetrated and wounded repeatedly, God means to bring forth myrrh. Look at the photos of this small, shrubby, briary bush. There's nothing too attractive about it. But wound it, let it bleed, and a sweet fragrance pours from it. The Christ was wounded for us, and pouring forth from him is love and redemption. Fathers, mothers, brothers, sisters, let us us yield to the wounding God allows in our lives to bring forth a sweet fragrance that will draw others to him. In love, this father in the parable preserved the estate of his older son and in love for his younger son and faith in a sovereign God gave him his request. It's shocking. This father bears the reproach of his son's shaming and does not cut him off to his love. Every father in here knows or will know 
what that either in some small measure or greatly what it is to feel embarrassed or ashamed by what a child does and to be hurt by them it feels very personal like a treachery and when we feel so ashamed at a spiritual level and often too by the perceived or the real judgments that we that, that are coming from other people around us we are bound by shame and unable to love so I think it's an important thing to consider too here that shame binds us and makes us unable to love. But Christ covers our shame and he restores us as, to himself as we will see more later. This resinous myrrh does not bleed out of us and we tend to cover our wound and suffer. This father in our story who represents our Heavenly Father, is not bound by shame and unable to love. Out of love for the Son, the Father bears the reproach of the shame of His Son, and He does this openly. The Father freely gave the inheritance to an unworthy, cruel, and unloving Son. He did not, he did not refuse Him in order to save His reputation in the community. In refusing, He could have established the facts to everybody. And he could have cut off his son, but he gave to the unworthy. And in so doing, he showcased the love of our God to a people who are so chronically unfaithful. The second observation is this. The father commits his son into the hands of, a, of the sovereign, famine-making God. The only way a father with a heart full of love for his son can do what this father does is with the utter conviction that his son cannot escape the reach of God. We believe in irresistible grace. Irresistible grace. That when God wants to, he can bring us to the end of ourselves, and he can and he will do it. God is the God of earthquake and famine. And while we are not given the license to make judgments about those things outside of Scripture, we know that God is over them all and is mysteriously working to bring his purposes to pass. And then, then we read in, verses, in verse 13 that not many days later, the son gathered everything together and left. He must have converted it all to cash. How heartbreaking the estate that the father had built was probably sold for 50 cents on the dollar and the son left. We ask ourselves, what is it that drives this son to rebellion? Are you tempted to be angry with him? Or do you feel a great sympathy in your heart for him? Or perhaps you feel a mix of both like me. It's important for us right now to examine that in ourselves and what our reaction to these characters reveal about us. Of course, there's, there's a few main lessons to be learned from this story, but we are invited into the emotion and the circumstances of it so that it can reveal what is in our own hearts. Surely Jesus means for us to relate to these events and characters, to see ourselves in it, to be drawn into it as if he is revealing to us our own lives at the same time. We have to always come to Scripture 
as if we're entering into it so that the Holy Spirit may apply it to our hearts. Perhaps this younger brother was embittered against his older brother, whose expectations he could never live up to. Or maybe he just resented the perfection of his older brother, who never got in trouble because he never outwardly broke the rules. But who could not, this this older brother yet could not hide his attitude of arrogance and superiority from his little brother, who of course could see straight through it. Or was it just that this younger son's innate sin tendency was to rebel? To see rules as meant to be broken and to rebel just against everything. In any event, the love of the father does not stop him from his course that he is hell-bent on. He takes up his inheritance and he leaves his family and community. This would have been a black day. On days like this, Appearances are stripped away, and we are seen to be who we truly are. If you have lived through such a blight, or you've walked with dear friends through it, you know just how painful it is when when you or those dear to you, whose lives you are bound by nature to, fall from grace, and it is known. All of a sudden, we become that person. We become that family. The sin is exposed, the internal rot is uncovered, and everyone knows your business. Without the grace of God, this wound can be fatal. And in the midst of such spiritual warfare raging in our souls, when we go through such times, there is always the feeling that we are alone in our shame. It can feel as though everyone else is doing great. Their marriages are great, Their kids are great, and in fact, they probably have Bible studies all the time in their house. And it's not true. None of it's true. The reality is, none of us can bear our ugliness to be known short of a Category 5 miracle work of grace in our hearts, which is usually born through experiences like we're reading about in this gospel, where we come into contact with the healing love and grace of God, our Father. There have been things that have happened in my own life and family, especially over the last 20 years, that have exposed us in ways that made me want to crawl under a rock and never be seen again. To never have to feel the pain of the question, what is wrong with your family? This father and the older brother, they now had to find a way to go on living with the prodigal gone. Sometimes it feels like a relief, sometimes an unbearable loss. But to think of this story as simply the the parable of the prodigal son stops far short of the intended impact. The outwardly rebellious son indeed makes the headlines, but it's only part of the story. This is the parable of the lost sons. The prodigal, and is harder to recognize, but equally spiritually lost older brother, the pretender. The truth is that this older rule-keeping son, he's a lot easier on the family. He never brings them shame. He's responsible, he's employed, he's respectful, but he's equally spiritually lost. 
The lessons from the life of this son are not mysterious or difficult to see. We know who the prodigal is. We knew who the, know who the pretender is. If you're here this morning and you're the rebel type at heart, God is wanting you to see right now in the gospel that the pleasures of sin are just for a season. And the end of running from God is always sad and lonely and messy and poor. Are you like this son who can't wait to get away from home, away from all the restraints of parents and church, and start to have some fun? In your heart is a deep well of emptiness, longing to be filled with everything but the love of the Father. And eventually, you will only have refuse to eat. You may run from God. You may run from those who love you. You may try to fill up that black void of emptiness with all the pleasures of this world. And you will find in the end, all you have is the emptiness you started with. This son had nothing in the end. He was feeding hogs on a hog farm and wishing he could eat as well as them. It's a warning to us of, of a severe mercy to think that fulfillment can come to us outside of knowing the love of the Father. The message of Scripture, not to mention my own life and experience, is this, that the way of the transgressor is hard. In the end, you will feel deep regret and say with the Son in Proverbs 5, how I have hated instruction and my heart spurned reproof. And I have not listened to the voice of my teachers nor inclined my ear to my instructors. I was almost in utter ruin in the congregation and the assembly. The older brother's sins of pride and self-righteousness, they're harder to see, but they're no less heartbreaking. And to the younger brother, they are totally contemptible. If If you're like this younger brother at heart, you know the temptation to excuse your own sins by pointing to the self-righteousness of your older brother types. You may not even care to hide your sins and readily but unrepentantly acknowledge them. But if the alternative is becoming like your older brother, then you'd rather die in your sins. This is how deep the animosity can run. And if you're like the older son, and I will say that there is, I believe, a subtle and insidious tendency for us as Christians to become like the older brother... It's much harder to see ourselves as we truly are. Even when he is confronted with his lack of love at the end of the parable, he fails to see himself. Pride and self-righteousness make us blind to it. He doesn't see that no one is rejoicing over all his perfection. The story ends with the son arguing with his father and the father pleading with him to see. Your brother was dead. And lives again. He was lost and has now been found. This son was indignant and angry because of how unfair and wrong it was for his scoundrel brother to be forgiven without any groveling, any punishment, without him having the chance to lay into him and scold him for how he has shamed his family and brought such chaos into everyone's life. In fact, he returned to no change of status. The honor and blessing of a son was fully restored to him. 
And if you find yourself thinking, yeah, well, I, I get the lack of love, but he is right, and I don't blame him, then I think we're getting to Jesus' point. The gospel is the free and unconditional forgiveness for the repentant. This son reveals what has been driving him all his life. It reveals the motives of his heart. He says, all my life, I have been serving you, and I have never disobeyed one of your commands. This is one of those moments where he should have received an immediate eye-opening epiphany. He has told on himself, and he didn't even mean to. In his eyes, he had no need of repentance. His brother did, but he did not. When he said, I have never disobeyed one of your commands, everyone in the room except himself knew that this was untrue and impossible. No son is that perfect except the Son of God. He is one of those 99 Jesus was speaking of when he said, there is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. All of a sudden, this son's heart gushes forth. It was by his service and his striving and his righteousness that he was putting his father in his debt and that the father owed him. He was blind now to the fact that actually everything he had and enjoyed was because it belonged to the Father first, who was freely sharing it with him. In his answer, the Father says, My son, all that is mine is yours. It was not that the Father who was in the it was not the Father who was in the Son's debt, but the Son who was in the Father's. The point is about having a relationship with the father and only the younger son understood it and possessed it in the end. So Jesus tells us that when the prodigal came to his senses, he decided to go home. I will get up and I will go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned. The evidence of God's dealing in our hearts, is humility. We know by the humility of this son and his plans and his words and how severe his humbling was that the work of God's gracious dealing in his heart and life is complete and now bearing fruit. But the most beautiful thing to me is not the repentance of the son right now, but it is this, and this is the third thing I would ask you to consider, that the love of the father was so powerful in his life that he could trust his father to be able to bear his sins. I have a confession to make about myself and my own tendencies. Sin scares me. It can freak me out. It makes me feel ashamed. And it humiliates me in front of others. I've suffered greatly for my own sins and for other people's sins. I feel how high the stakes are. And that's not helped me to be one who easily hears, like a priest, the sins of others that I love deeply. 
I want to be over that pain, if I'm honest. And yet it is when the myrrh shrub is wounded over and over, through the bark and into the sapwood, that beads of the precious fragrance are released. And we have a picture of this in the Father in our story. My trust in God's power to redeem others, it tends to be very high, except for those that I love the most. And there, it has often been weak. I would imagine the same is true for many of you, because it is those that we love the most with whom we have the most to lose. The father lost his son, the son of his, but rather than it stinging his pride, rather than it hardening his heart, he let it wound straight through to the sapwood and bring forth beads of beautiful grace and love and forgiveness. This son, this son had the confidence in his father's love and also in his capacity to quickly forgive him so that he could go back and see his father. This father is able to bear the weight of his son's sins, and the son knows it. Only a father who knows what to do with sin is able to, see, to do this. Only a father who has tasted experientially his own sins, borne away and nailed to Calvary's cross, his own sins atoned for and satisfied by sacrifice, his own sins forgiven by our Heavenly Father. Only that father can, can bear this for his son. In our vulnerability, we desperately want to protect ourselves and stop loving. But by the grace of Jesus, let us tap into the fragrant sap of Christ, the life giver. For his love will never run out. Let us, brothers and sisters, so tap in to the endless supply of God's love that we become, in practice, the holy priesthood we are called by God to be, a people to whom people can come with their sins so that we can take them to the one who alone has the power to forgive them and to redeem them. And so this son gets up and he journeys home. And when he was still a long way off, the scripture says, the father saw him. A beautiful thing is about to occur. Our text tells us that when he was still a long way off, the father saw him. No doubt that father had not ceased to look in the direction where his son had lost gone out of, last gone out of view. Any father whose heart is bleeding grace and love would always be scanning, always be praying, always hoping. And we read that this father had compassion on him. And he ran and embraced him and kissed him. He felt compassion and ran. This father, having, having already suffered public shaming, chooses now to do something that no self-respecting Jewish male landowner would do in his day. He suffers the further indignity to himself by running as an older man. And the language here is literally that he falls on that son's neck and kisses him again and again. 
The language here is so full of emotion, so full of love. Finally, the son is able to speak. This all happens before the son utters a word. Father, forgive me, for I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. He's not even able to finish the words that he had planned in his repentance. He had planned to be asked, he had planned to ask to be made as one of the hired servants on the estate. But before he can get the words out, the father, through his joyful weeping, calls his servant saying, Hurry up! Bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger. Put sandals on his feet. For this son of mine that was lost is found. Slay the fattened calf that we have reserved for a special celebration of thanksgiving. And I can't help but think that there is really special symbolic significance in that the first thing he does is get the robe and put it on his son. What is he doing? Surely the son, after hobnobbing with the pigs, did not smell or look very good. And I think that in this we see the beautiful act of the father covering the shame of his son. Imagine watching that all go down as one of the servants. This is the picture of what Christ does when he receives us. He covers our shame and he restores us as an honored member of his family. That we would create an environment in our persons, in our homes, and in this, yes, the church of Jesus Christ, that is inviting to younger brother types to return to so that we would celebrate their repentance. Let us with hope and mercy be looking for their return. Let us not give in to pride that makes us think that by shaming them, we will win them. When we ourselves are governed by shame, then we will try to control others by shame too. Remember, at the beginning of our text, it was the Pharisees and the scribes who were grumbling that the tax gatherers who were treated like the scum of the earth and, and the non-religious Jews called sinners, they were coming to Jesus. They were the, the Pharisees were the masters at shaming people. They had proved with the woman caught in adultery that with shame you can drag a person to Jesus. But the Father proves that only love will woo a person to Jesus. God help us be that people. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. No clearer picture could we have of what Christ has done for us. Just as the Father bore the shame of the Son's sins, so too Jesus has borne our sins to Calvary. He has borne the cost of it all. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the earth, of the world. And just as the Father was wounded by His Son's sins, so too Christ was wounded for our transgressions. It is by His stripes that we are healed. And just as neither Son not the prodigal nor the pretender, had a relationship with the Father where they could know and experience His love, neither do we have a relationship with Christ until we see how we have sinned against our Heavenly Father 
and are drawn now by his love to repentance. Just as it is the repentance of the younger son and not the appearance of perfection in the older brother that causes a celebration, so too it is our repentance that causes the angels of heaven to rejoice. Imagine the celebration in heaven being caused by you and for your repentance. They rejoice. May we be people that bring great joy in heaven, not by a facade of self-righteousness, not by the appearance of perfection, but by our repentance and our embrace of what Jesus has done, the love of the Father, the covering of our shame, and restoring us to full sonship and full privileges of his house. Amen. We come now to celebrate what Christ has done for us in his table. His sacrifice of his body on the cross, his blood shed for us. And we celebrate this now by sharing in his table. This is one of the two sacraments that was instituted by our Savior. It's a time of somber remembrance of Jesus' sacrifice but it's also a time of rejoicing in what that sacrifice has accomplished, our salvation. We know from the reliable testimony of Scripture that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup. After supper, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as you drink it in remembrance of me. At Liberty Church, we invite all who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior and been baptized to come to this table and share it with us. You don't have to be a member of our church or of any particular denomination to participate with us. But if you're still considering what you believe, you're not sure, you're still asking questions about who Jesus is and what he has done, I want to encourage you right now not to participate in this. Part of what we're doing in celebrating the Lord's Supper is proclaiming that we believe it. And I would invite you not to proclaim anything that you're not sure of and that you don't believe. Instead, I'd ask you to, to continue working through that. You can remain in your seat and be respected by all of us. We honor your integrity in that. If that is you, I'd, I'd encourage you to um, and welcome you to talk to me after the service and to continue wrestling through who Jesus is and what he has done. This is how we celebrate the Lord's Supper at Liberty. Uh, our musicians are going to come up and begin playing in a moment. You can take uh, a moment and prepare yourself to confess your sins to God. And then you're free to come forward and at any point during the music, during the song, 
Simply tear a piece off the loaf, and you can dip it into the cup. Uh, the taller goblet, the bluish one, has wine. Uh, the shorter brown goblet is juice, and our bread is gluten-free. Parents of children and, and Liberty Kids or the nursery, you're welcome to pick up your kids and uh, bring them into the service to join us for the rest of it. So I'm going to pray and then invite us all to come uh, to the table. Our Father, we have seen your love in the love of this Father. We have seen your sacrifice in this Father. We are grateful for what you have done for us, Jesus Christ, in bearing all our sin in paying for it in its entirety and restoring and redeeming us. We thank you. We worship you for that. And now as we celebrate that by receiving this bread and this cup, bless it. Bless it to us, O oh God, and give us your grace for living. In Jesus' name, amen. These are God's gifts for God's people. Come to the table.